let's just get used to saying the word sex. We're going to say the word sex a lot during this. So sex, sex, sex. Like, sex. I oh yeah, this is, a, this is, this is our ASMR channel. <laughs> sex. Today we're going to be saying the word sex so many times you won't be able to count. Or if you can count it, you get a prize and that's five whole Canadian dollars because I don't want to give you five U.S. dollars. Hi, welcome to What You Can Learn From. I'm Megan Underwood. I'm Hannah Duffy. We are two learning nerds exploring topics we're curious about and that we think we can learn something from. What are we talking about today, Hannah? Today, we are talking about sexual health. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I know. Get ready. We're going to say the word sex in all of its forms a lot today. Is this the point where I get to sing my little song? Let's talk about sex, baby. Okay. No, that's enough. Thank God. Thank God we aren't monetizing this podcast because whatever label owns that song <laughs> probably would have caught, given us. Don't come at me, strike. copyright lawyers. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Actually, Hannah, on that song, just really quick before we really launch into this, I remember when that song came out and I was a child and I was sitting in the car with my mom and it was playing on the radio and my mom was like, oh gosh, oh gosh, this is on the radio. I was like, what are they talking about, Bob? <laughs> it's um, it's like uh, Afternoon Delight, <laughs> which actually talks about what you said before we launched. It's, it's skyrockets in flight. Yeah. <laughs> afternoon delight um or when two become one hannah if you want to go little spice girls in there yeah we could when two become one or um one of my personal favorite songs false god by taylor swift the altar is my hips yes noise really enjoy that song okay but we're not talking just about sex we're talking about sexual health right or are we just talking about sex i mean maybe in a later episode when we have a more established base where we can tick people off (laughs) <laughs> all right Hannah what what are, what are we going to learn about sexual health today tell us why and how you became to be someone who is so smart about sexual health so right now as a lot of people who are listening probably know I don't work in public health but I do have a master's degree in global health um, I went out of the U.S. so rather than getting the traditional MPH or the master's in public health designation that you get here, I have a master's of science or an MSc in global health. My focus was on sexual and reproductive health. So one of the things that I really am passionate about and would eventually like to devote my life to working on is creating evidence-based and equitable sexual and reproductive health programming for people around the world, specifically in areas of conflict and displacement where people generally more vulnerable to things like um, intimate partner violence or uh, just sexual and gender-based violence or might be in a position where they have to trade sex for safety or they've run out of money and so they have to trade sex for passage or entry into a new country. My focus is really on a a social justice and a reproductive justice lens of public health. That is so awesome and you are such a smarty pants and I'm so glad that we get to talk about this today. I'm so excited to talk about this. (laughs) 
<laughs> we aren't going to go too deep into the topic. We're going to just kind of scratch the surface, maybe talk about a couple of relevant issues. I don't know. Maybe if people have questions, they can DM us or whatever, and we yes. can do another episode later on. Yeah, we can do sexual health part two. That's really cool, Hannah. I'm so stoked that we get to talk about this today. And I know it's totally your wheelhouse. My first question for you is like, how did you decide you wanted to get into you know, public health and sexual health? Public health, my mom actually really steered me in that direction. Um, initially, I wanted to be a medical doctor. Um, and then I discovered upper level science and math courses and realized that I would never be able to pass those to get into medical school. Um, so we scratched that dream. And I also have a background in political science. So I thought I would be doing more public health advocacy work, but I really wanted to be on the front lines of care and delivering information without having that actual medical background. The sexual health stuff kind of happened just by accident. Um, I was dabbling in college, as you do, and I ended up taking a couple of public health courses, and I took one on human sexuality, which really piqued my interest. And then I took an intro to epidemiology course with someone who was a sexual health expert. Getting to interact with a couple of people who were super passionate about the, that type of work made me want to look into it more and really made me think back on my experience as a student being educated about sexual and reproductive health, really taking a deep dive into my classmates and my friends in college and hearing how some of them had been poorly prepared <laughs> to, um, yeah, to like have sex or have conversations about sex or mm. conversations about consent. Mm. I had one friend who told me that her, and she didn't, she went to a, a private school, so they were able to make their own curriculum. But she told me that when she was taking her health class, the teacher told them that if they wore two condoms, no. Yeah. Stop right now. No. If you were not aware and you plan to have sex with someone and you, there is a chance that you could get pregnant, only wear one condom. Make sure it's not expired. <laughs> like I can hear your claps in the background as you say. That. I'm like, that was, that was fist going into my palm, but only wear one condom because the friction of the latex rubbing against each other will tear the latex which means <sighs> broken condom sperm gets okay into well, vagina this is like a very interesting discussion already hannah because you're <laughs> making me remember how varied sexual education can be specifically like even from school board to school board even from school to school country to country it is like literally insane mm -hmm. but i also know I know a lot about sexual education in the U.S. because at one point this year or last year, I was like, wait a minute, is there sex ed in the U.S.? Who mandates that? <laughs> um, and, and these are just the weird things I think about. And, um, and I noticed that it's not very clear and it's not mandated. And it's uh, in some cases pretty, pretty terrible, pretty bad. I actually wanted to ask you, Megan, kind of about your experience. I feel yeah. extremely lucky and it's something I'll hopefully uh, continue on in when I have a family is my mom has been so amazing 
she she grew up i think this is just her way of like trying to stop what happened in her life when uh she grew up and if you like asked a question that was about sex or sexual health or something she wouldn't get an answer from her mom or from anybody like this is like the 50s 60s kind of thing so uh it was very taboo Mm -hmm. and so when i was growing up my mom like made it her mission that like if we asked a question she would she would give us an answer or find an answer that was appropriate for our age she's amazing yeah i never felt uncomfortable asking questions about sex or sexual health um and Mm -hmm. then i had like i'll never forget the like you know in grade i think it was like grade five we had like a you know, sex ed class, which is all really about puberty and stuff. It wasn't so much like mm-hmm. sex ed. And then in grade seven, I think grade seven and eight, that was when we did like, I remember my high school gym teacher doing, it was like part of gym, gym class was sex ed class. Yep. We spent a and, quarter. Yeah. And like we yeah. sat in a classroom with our like phys ed teacher and he tried to teach like sorry Mr. Vivoda you were fine but like also uncomfortable as a like for somebody to teach preteens about you know sex and sex ed um and I remember specifically that there was like this anonymous question box you could like write down your anonymous question and like put it in the and he would like read the questions out and like give try and give answers and people would ask ridiculous questions um, or like try and make try and ask embarrassing questions like of the teacher um yeah so that was it and then I like I don't even remember in high school like you take science and biology and like you learn about the science of stuff but I don't think we ever really had like a sex ed class in high school and like any of my classmates really did, like remind me because I don't remember um yeah I really don't I really wow. don't remember a a sex ed class in high school maybe I'm just forgetting it maybe it was part of phys ed or something and I forgot it but I don't know or maybe it was traumatic and you blocked it out (laughs) (laughs) maybe it was so bad no I uh yeah yeah. but I the other cool thing that I'll call out that um they did here in Canada was like they also had this cute little like uh drama troupe that would like go around and do these little skits about you know sexual health and stuff I remember that that's really cool yeah it's like actual sex like you want to make it fun (laughs) yeah it should be fun even if it's like you look back and it was a fun experience to watch this drama troupe that you found horrifically embarrassing at the time oh yeah you had by all accounts in my opinion a better experience than most people (laughs) i i have no doubt having found out what I found out about the U.S. education system when it comes to sex ed, I have no doubt my sex ed experience was 20 times better than the average American. Oh, at the very least. I, we haven't figured out how to bleep things out yet, so it's effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Backtracking to my experience in sex ed, that we had, at least in my school district, at the end of elementary school, so the end of fifth grade, so kids were 10 going on 11, we had, yeah, that, like, puberty discussion where we also did learn about sex itself. In middle school, so sixth, seventh, and eighth grades, we would take a quarter out of the year and replace our gym class with health. In eighth grade, 
rather than having, and it's sixth and seventh grade, you had your gym teacher actually teach you that class. In eighth grade, when you actually had a sexual health class, they had a different person teaching it. It was someone who was actually trained to teach sexual health to 13-year-old kids, which in retrospective was a good idea. Because if I think about either of my gym teachers in sixth and seventh grade teaching me about sex, I probably would have, I like, I never skipped class because I was so afraid of breaking the rules. I probably would have skipped class. <laughs> but we had someone who was actually a trained professional knew what she was talking about, you know, taught us about certain diseases. There was in fifth grade, so people were were still really, really afraid of AIDS. And there was a right? lot okay. of focus on I'm AIDS. Really glad it was you basically that up. like if you it was basically like if you have sex, you'll get AIDS and you'll die. It was mean girls. Oh. Wow, it wasn't like that for us. But AIDS was definitely a big part of the conversation. And I I also feel really passionate about the fact that there's like a huge gap for our generation in that the sexual education that we had at that age was like, AIDS is terrible, you're going to die. And the advances yeah. that we've had in sexual medicine or like medicine and um, treatment for HIV AIDS has grown so much in the past 20 years mm-hmm. um, yeah. that there's like a big education gap for our generation for sure. Oh, in- incredibly so. And, you know, that's something that I routinely try to fill those gaps in my knowledge. It took until I was in my 20s for me to realize, oh, wait, like, you know, this isn't, and it is no longer the death sentence it was in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. Like, it's still an awful disease but now we have things like prep and i mean i i remember having to explain to a friend what prep was prep prep is uh, um if you if you aren't aware of what prep is it's pre-expo- pre-exposure prophylaxis essentially if you are having penetrative sex with a person who is hiv positive this medication stops the HIV virus from being transmitted to the person the on the receiving end. So the person who has a negative status takes it and the person with the positive status is, you know, obviously doesn't take it because they've been exposed. If you're if you're curious about it, more than happy to talk about it. There's a lot of information on the internet about it. If you live in the US, there are a ton of commercials now for prep, which I think is so cool because there were never commercials for anti antiretroviral medications. And now we're talking about something that's literally just used for sex to prevent yeah. the spread of HIV and AIDS. Prophylactic. Prep. Really cool. Yeah. Really cool invention. So cool. Anyway, going back, that that is a really great point about the kind of like AIDS, HIV AIDS education gap that our generation has. In high school, we had to take one semester of health. By that time, the woman who was teaching it in the middle school had moved over to the high school. So she, again, just exclusively taught health and you'd take it for a semester and then you'd have your requirement for graduation. I remember someone I knew, I was taking it and I asked one of my friends, oh, have you taken it yet? And she said, no, because my family doesn't agree with the curriculum. So I'm trying to get a religious exemption. Oh, can we, can we talk about that for a second? 
Yes, please. Sorry, I feel like we're gonna. I feel like I'm gonna jump on these like things that you say and be like, "Oh my god, we need to talk about this." <laughs> um, yeah. Can I just say, and you know, religious people, I'm sorry. Everybody deserves and needs sexual education, regardless of their religion. Everybody. Yeah. I don't think there needs to be any kind of exemption for, for anybody to learn about the body, how people reproduce, and how to be safe. It is like vaccination. Yes. I personally think that the only reason you should be exempt from having a vaccine is if you are allergic to an ingredient in the vaccine. Or if you're immunocompromised and you can't take a vaccine. But like, there's no reason for you to be exempt from those things for religious reasons and i bet we're gonna ruffle some feathers with this because like it's america and people like you know love their civil liberties or whatever but come on but only if it's like their civil liberties and exactly it, it doesn't matter if, if somebody else on other people's matter. civil liberties yes mm-hmm. meanwhile i'm out here like just live your damn life like yeah. don't hurt anyone make sure everyone's consenting like live you live your damn life i was just thinking of this time that my So one of my other public health friends does a lot of work with um, vaccinations. And once I was talking about intimate partner violence, which is abbreviated to IPV, we were talking over text and she texted me back and she said, I was trying to figure out for like over a minute why you were talking about the inactivated polio virus vaccine <laughs> because that's also abbreviated to IPV. I was like, man, we got to come up with some new letters in public health. For real. Okay. So Hannah, what do you think the elements of good sexual education involve? Oh, or man. sorry, what do you, well, because this is like, we've just kind of gone on a couple tangents. What do you think the key elements of a good sexual education program looks like or involves? It is going to vary from place to place because one of the most important things about any educational program that you have is that it has to be culturally sensitive. There are some Mm. places in the world where saying the word sex is like, 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 oh my God, (laughs) like, and, and talking about it is still incredibly taboo all over the world. I mean, the fact that we are sitting here just casually having a conversation about sexual health and the fact that we have had you know just you and I together like very casual conversations about sex is really really novel it's still such a new idea that like I mean people I'm sure there are going to be people who have to click out of this it has to be culturally sensitive if you come to really open people like the two of us and you start talking about abstinence only or abstinence plus sexual education, you and I are immediately going to tune things out. You need to tell us something new. You need to tell us something that is actually going to (laughs) stimulate our brains. Um, (laughs) I mean, the the verb was there. It was well done. The verb was there. And I regret nothing. Number one, make it culturally sensitive. If people have not been exposed to a lot of talk about sex and reproduction and sexuality and gender identity, start slow. Get the building blocks in and then start to build off of that. I think that things that really need to be included from the get-go are discussions about consent, 
mm-hmm. discussions around infectious disease, mm-hmm. infe- discussions about infectious de- disease prevention, as well as how to treat them. There are some sexual, sexually transmitted infections and diseases that are curable. And then there are some that you live with for the rest of your life. Disease management needs to be a really prominent topic, but in a way that does not make people afraid to talk about (laughs) disease or afraid to address disease. We need to destigmatize sexually transmitted diseases. Like, yeah, we all know people who have them, whether or not they're open about it, that's up to them. But it's kind of like an abortion. You all know someone who has had an abortion. Whether or not that person chooses to talk about it, that's up to them. You all know someone who has been sexually assaulted. Whether or not that person chooses to talk about it is up to them. But like, we can't have it hide in the shadows. Yeah. And I think that's that bit, Hannah, like that for me is probably the most frustrating part of when I look at sex ed across uh, North America is that, you know, it's so stigmatized, but Mm -hmm. the more stigmatized it is and the less access to information that people have, the more people that either become pregnant who don't want to be pregnant, end up with an infectious disease from a sexual encounter, uh, you know, more people don't understand consent or know about consent. Like there's just so much, I see it as like fundamentally such an education problem that I find it difficult to grapple with when I look at, you know, the teen pregnancy rate and, uh, you know, sexual disease, sexual uh, infections rate and stuff like that. It's just like, this can all be mitigated in some way if people have proper education and understanding of sexual health. Yeah. One thing that really frustrates me is people don't want to tell people about sex and sure like sex is fun but also you don't want to talk about unintended consequences of sex if you are and that's you know another unintended consequences of sex in the sense of pregnancy implies heterosexual sex so penis penis and vagina and that is not always the case like i look i did not learn anything about queer relationships in my sex ed journey throughout the Maryland K through 12 educational experience. I think people probably said, okay, gay people are two men that love each other and are sexually attracted to each other. Lesbians are two women who are sexually attracted to each other. Bisexuals are attracted to men and women. I actually found an activity when I was clearing about out a bunch of junk that said exactly that from like my high school sex ed class. There are but only, th- there's only three sexual orientations. There, there are only three <laughs> sexual orientations. And granted, I took that in 2008. So, you know, at that yeah. point we were pretty, we were pretty far ahead of the curve on yeah. sex ed and, but we didn't talk about like, okay, how might two women have sex? How might two men have sex? It was all like, all right, the penis goes in the vagina. You're oh a man God. and you're a woman. Or I mean, I think mine was the same, actually. Like, if I think about it, I think my sex ed was very heterosexual. There was zero discussion around, um, you know, queer sex or gender expression in any way. 
oh god no forget that like i don't even think the word transgender made it into the dialogue let alone non-binary yeah identities like oh my god well i didn't know what a dental dam was until way later yeah wow yeah why did my most of my sex ed come from sex in the city no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) yeah it came from tv and it wasn't always accurate exactly but also at least it didn't occur to me that you could get a sexually transmitted disease from having oral sex. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't even cross my mind. Um, so going back to, I literally in fifth grade when the teacher was talking about it, I literally raised my hand and said, I don't get it. When she was talking <laughs> about putting a penis in a vagina, I raised my hand and said, I don't get it. And the entire class laughed at me and she said, don't worry, Hannah, they're all laughing because they're nervous or they don't understand either and they didn't want to ask. True. And it's like, okay, like now looking back on it, I'm like, valid. But in the moment, I was just like, I was mortified. mortified. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that she ever said in heterosexual sex, a man will put his penis in a woman's vagina. Like, there was no talk about orgasms. There was no talk about, like, foreplay. Pleasure. Pleasure as, yeah. as like, there a, was, a topic. Yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't even a talk. There weren't even discussions about condoms. I didn't learn about that until eighth grade. Oh, my God. Yeah. I thought that sex was just for having babies. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I don't want babies. So I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> like oh geez what about me (laughs) yeah um wait so i'm sorry we we're still i got way off topic about what i want sexual health education to be yeah i was gonna say let's bring it back yeah let's reel it back in although this is a good conversation i'm not editing this out okay (laughs) so talking about disease talking about reproductive health you have to talk about not just heterosexual sex you have to talk about queer sex in all of its forms you have to talk about gender identity you have to talk about sexual orientation you also have to talk about those last two things knowing that that is a very fluid space Mm -hmm. and something that you say right now might be redefined sometime soon and you have to have the willingness to adapt you have to learn about ways to prevent disease and prevent pregnancy you have to learn about um, what an orgasm is because oh my god nobody tells you about that <laughs> um, you need to learn about consent you have to learn about what is hormonally going on in your body not as an not just as an adult but what's going on in your body as a child going through puberty yeah. what like all of those stews of hormones are like talk about it normalize it we were all sweaty little pimply little things out like hormone baths at one point i guess technically we still are but like we i was gonna really say i definitely still am a stinky pimply hormone bath but yeah carry on yeah yeah um if you started using a retinoid also in quarantine um yeah it's bad it's it's bad I'm, i was very pimply for a while and it's just starting to even <laughs> out yeah consent prevention of sexual violence, prevention of gender-based violence, it has to be an all-encompassing 
thing. It can't just be, and here's how you put on a condom. Here's this banana. Here's a condom. Oh, here's God. how you Classic. roll it on. Yeah. yeah, I feel I mean, like, like sex ed is always, well, at least, and so we're also speaking from a space where like we're talking about our experiences from 20 years ago. So things have probably changed a little bit, probably not significantly probably. if I know anything about the education system, but we've just been getting a slice <laughs> or we got a, a small sliver of the pie. Um, and then I don't know, I think both you and I, Hannah, over the past 20 years have been trying to fill out the rest of the pie from our own, yeah reading experience <laughs> yeah. reading and experience or reading experience, experience could mean anything you know yeah um, yeah experience one of those broad words yeah there's i think that's like you know again i think it's a fundamental problem in the way that um sexual education is approached i also still think even based off some of the things that i've been seeing in the over the past couple of weeks with the way that like instagram's changing their terms of service um, oh my god yeah that there's a lot of inherent purity culture bs that still exists in you know today's world that still tries oh, yes. to um gag or cover up any kind of true sexual education for people oh and dude I really am i so glad you said the word gag <laughs> because i tried to make it good hannah no, 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 no. Am I uh, not just from like a teehee perspective, but from a policy perspective? I mean, sure, Instagram's ter updated terms of service, if you aren't aware of it, is essentially a gag order on sexual health educators. Um, and obviously sexual content in general. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't want certain things to be going around. You don't want horrible things broadcast on Instagram, but you do want people to be able to use the internet for good. <laughs> and yeah. that includes a lot of sex educators who do inclusive work for not just for heterosexual relationships, but for queer relationships, for people who are leaving traumatic situations, for people who are leaving abuse, uh, people who have experienced uh, housing insecurity and um, anything really that uh, yeah I, I the Instagram terms of service is going to be really harmful and I know you and I both follow a lot of people on Instagram who are sex educators who do really great work and they're all really concerned about what this means for their Instagram audience because a lot of these people don't have access to anything outside of that platform and don't or don't have access to resources outside of that platform whether it's from fear um that someone's going to see that they're googling like how does how do two women have sex because you know they don't want to come out <laughs> to their family because they're not accepting or they're just curious about something and they're they're afraid that's going to be a really interesting time on Instagram. Not interesting, probably in a good way, but just an interesting shift in the narrative in certain spaces on that platform. One of our favorite uh, sexual educators on Instagram, Erica Smith. Yes. If you don't know about, yeah, if you don't know about Erica Smith, she um, is an incredible sex educator. I've probably learned more about 
sexual health and sexuality and purity culture from nobody else in this world. So she is at Erica Smith, E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I-T-H dot educates. And she did a, she did a post uh, last year on 2019 about the state of um, sexual education in the U.S. And um, it's really interesting. So it's people like this who we need more of. Um, people like this who should be hired to go and actually educate people about sex. And when I think about the people that they're getting to do sex education in, in a school, it makes me angry because, you know, even, even if you are a good teacher, you might bring your own perspective and religion into sex education without realizing that you are. And that's not fair. Particularly if you have people, if you're projecting something that's harmful. And sex education is an equity issue. You know, for me, this goes so much deeper than making sure people are getting great education. It's also making sure people don't end up with an unwanted pregnancy as a teenager, because that will just then perpetuate the situation that they maybe grew up in. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I, I really see it as a, as an equity issue on so many different levels, but in particular, I think that by, um, not providing good sex education to people, the uh, continuation of folks ending up in situations that they can't afford or don't want to be in will continue. This is, again, a great segue, partially to the gag <laughs> thing that I was, uh, or the, yeah, with your use of the word gag, yeah. but also um, not giving people the access they need to health services or health information. So this is, I'm, I'm going to back it up into the U.S. only. Um, no problem. For these are policies that impact a lot of people. But there are a few, um, a few things that have been an amoral scourge on the public health community in the U.S., particularly the sexual and reproductive health community. Um, and those are the Hyde Amendment, the Helms Amendment, and the Mexico City policy, also known as the Global Gag Order. I literally know nothing about any of these. Please explain. Well, don't you worry, Megan. Buckle up. I'm cozied in. Talk to me, Hannah. Yeah, you might. Well, you might want to take the blanket off because I'm taking mine off because I'm already feeling myself getting warm talking about these. <laughs> these all have to do with abortion. And, you know, you're talking okay, about people having unwanted... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you're talking about people having unwanted pregnancies and either not being able to access services to, um, to terminate those or not having the resources to provide for a child that they were unprepared for. These policies do a pretty great job at making sure that people, particularly lower income people, are unable to afford to access reproductive health services. So we're going to start with the Hyde Amendment. This is a piece of legislation that gets renewed basically every year, and it bans the U.S. government from using federal funds to pay for abortion services, except in the cases of incest, rape, 
and when a pregnant person's life is in danger or threatened because of the pregnancy. Now, when I say in danger, like some some countries will actually consider a pregnant person's mental health when it comes to a medical reason for providing an abortion. This is just like no, no, no. That 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 ain't thing. That ain't real. Wow. You'll hear a lot of people, you know, getting blue in the face about defund Planned Parenthood. They're they're providing abortions. They're killing babies, which like, you know, without getting know. into that whole mess. <laughs> without getting, getting into in that there, mess. But sweeping declaration. They're not killing babies. Okay, carry on. That. But also, because Planned Parenthood does receive federal funding from the U.S. government, but because of the Hyde Amendment, the appropriations that they get from the U.S. government legally cannot be used to deliver abortion services. That money goes to other places. So people say defund Planned Parenthood. All right, well, if you defund Planned Parenthood, then you defund pap smears, cancer screening, or just free basic condoms. gynecological, yeah. yeah, free condoms, basic gynecological medical care, access to uh, hormonal and non-hormonal contraceptive devices. I mean, the list goes on and on. And they get these people get really fired up and stuck on the fact that Planned Parenthood Planned Parenthood provides abortions. And the worst part about it is the political figures who lead the fight are absolutely aware that this is not something that the federal government funds. The federal government is not giving Planned Parenthood money for abortions. It's giving it money for other essential health services. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong personally with the federal government giving Planned Parenthood money to I was just about to be like abortion services. And I think they should. Yeah. I absolutely think they should, but they really just, they grab onto this rhetoric that people get so fired up about and they say, sure, I know it's wrong, but I can play along with it. I'll, I'll stoke the flame because that'll get people to come out and vote for them. Okay. Well, tell me about the next one. I'm already pissed off. Keep going. I know. Right. <laughs> can you hear how like my, my, TMJ I had to hold back really going off. I had to hold back a very <laughs> exacerbated, exas- exacerbated, exacerbated, <laughs> masturbated, <laughs> whatever. I, I had to hold back a big oh, yeah. sigh. You also have to, you also have to teach about masturbation and. and oh my god! Sex. Yes, we forgot to mention that. Sorry, we did forget to mention that. But well, actually, look, I said that might orgasms. have been covered under pleasure. Yeah, it was covered under pleasure and orgasms. But I still feel like we should say that. Yes. <laughs> so we have total three <laughs> policies. We have the Hyde Amendment, which bans the use of federal funding to pay for abortions in the U.S. We have the Helms Amendment, which is part of, it's part of the Foreign Aid Act. Um, No, are they? Yeah. yeah. No, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yep. Oh my God. Yep. No, no. Hannah, I don't want to hear this. You're going to tell me that the U.S. government doesn't allow for foreign aid to apply to sexual health. Don't tell me that. So not the Helms Amendment. (laughs) The Helms Amendment forbids any foreign aid from the U.S. government from going to provide, going to direct provision of abortion services. For God's sakes. In other countries. Yeah. So you can have this money, but don't you dare use it for this. So like my mom and my sister were watching a crappy Hallmark or Lifetime movie last night. So I'm going to use that as an example because it's a fake country. There right. was this country called Ancadia. 
and let's <laughs> say Ancadia has, you know, they appear to be very wealthy, but let's say that they weren't and they needed some outside aid from an ally or a supposed ally to help fund some health services for the good people of Ancadia. Let's say the U.S. government wants to do that. And they say, all right, I, there are seven key NGOs on the ground providing health services. We're going to divide up the money between the seven. But wait, three of them provide abortion services. Okay, well, you can have the money, but you have to show us that it is not going to the abortion services. Now, let's step back just a little bit. The Helms Amendment initially goes into effect in 1973. 1984, Ronald Reagan is in office. What a time. <laughs> Thank God I wasn't alive then. <laughs> what a time to not be alive. Thank God for that. What a time, or as I was, as I would have said when I was a small child, back when I was dead, 1984, a policy goes into effect called the Global Gag Rule. The global gag rule, also known in some spheres as the Mexico City policy because that's where it was decided on, prohibits any U.S. federal funding to an organization that provides abortion services. So let's go back to our lovely Ancadia. Ancadia, again, has seven key NGOs on the ground providing health services. Three of them provide abortion services. In administrations where the gag rule is in effect, those three organizations would either have to say, we are going to cease and desist all abortion services, or they have to say, nah, we'll, we'll skip the money. <laughs> it, like, you can't even talk about abortion. It's anything to do with abortion. So oh US imperialism strikes again. Just as like, so colonialist. Yeah. Now, this is also something that was adopted. It's been adopted through an executive order. It goes back and forth with each party. So it was in effect until Bill Clinton took office in 1993. And then when George W. Bush came into office in 2001, he signed an executive order saying, nope, we're back on Mexico City. And then when Obama came into office, he signed one saying, we're off that again. And then one of the first things Donald Trump signed when he got inaugurated was reinstituting the global gag rule. So it's something that until it is codified that that switch is just going to keep happening. Every time a presidential administration switches from Republican to Democrat, the gag rule will be rescinded. Vice versa, the gag rule will be reinstituted. I'm getting really mad. Um, Same. But what I will say is that I don't know about how Canada stacks up against that. What I will say, though, is that socialized medicine means that those rules around abortion services at the federal level can't be implemented because you are funding healthcare and socialized healthcare for an entire population. So you can't, on you know, any kind of like weird religious grounds make a declaration like that. So, so living in Canada, I have uh, socialized public health. I pay for my healthcare and my taxes. I literally never pay for a doctor's appointment. I can access an abortion for free at any time, anytime for free. I can go and have an abortion. No questions. It, it actually just blows my mind that in other places in the world, 
that that isn't the experience and i feel so privileged to have that option yeah and you know i have railed against u.s policy in this episode um but we still have it a lot better than other places in the world i i mean where i live i would have it better than people in other parts of the country not too far away from me if i was in a position where i needed an abortion geography is everything in the u.s and yeah. sometimes you i mean like there was all that stuff with alabama's heartbeat bill last year oh my um, god they yeah where you if you had aided a person in crossing state lines to get an abortion you could have gotten 99 years in prison because you were basically considered aiding and abetting a murder so the thing that pisses me off is that legislation has any say over what people do with their bodies there should be yes. like there is no reason for anybody to know or care about whether or not I have an abortion. The only person that that should matter to is me. And whatever kind of health services I want to access for my body are my business. Amen. That's the only religion that I believe in. <laughs> for real. Like, you know, I just... It's... That and, and False God by Taylor Swift. <laughs> but like, it, it comes down to bodily autonomy. Like, I have autonomy over my own body. The government should have nothing to do with it. In theory, yes, but no. Except for vaccinations. I think those should be government mandated. Absolutely. <laughs> because it's a public health issue. You are, yes. if you are willingly causing someone else harm because you decide is... you just don't want it, or you think that vaccine injury is a thing when some idiot wrote, a, what was it? He wrote it in either the Lancet or BMJ. I think it was BMJ. He just decided he was going to write this non-scientific article talking about how vaccines cause autism. Yeah, it was total bullshit. The journal rescinded it and he got his medical license revoked. What does it take for you to stop being oh god okay. but this is but this is the this is the crux of it, right? Because this is what really makes me ticked off is that the idea that the government can mandate things that you know cause harm for others, right? So the government should can and should mandate for everybody to be vaccinated, I believe, because it protects other people. There's no reason for the government to mandate against abortion because it doesn't protect anybody. If anything, the government should say that abortions are allowed everywhere because then you're protecting women and people with uteruses who have children against so many things, but also protecting that a potential unborn child being born into a situation that they, that they just shouldn't. Like, this is the thing that just makes me so mad. If it's actually about protection, then actually come at it from a protection angle. Because protecting mm -hmm. people looks very different mm -hmm. than saying women shouldn't be allowed to have abortions. Sorry, we're like deep into this abortion yeah. conversation now because I'm just so really amped up about it. But frig, man. <laughs> It's so true. But I also want to say that little switch you made about people with uteruses. Gender is a social construct. We're also, we don't want to minimize the experiences of trans men who have uteruses and mm -hmm. choose to have to carry children. We don't want to minimize the experiences of non-binary people who have uteruses and seek abortion services. I mean, don't control bodies. That's, that's right. it. Like, just don't do any harm. And you know what? If you are going to put those huge bans on abortion and big sweeping restrictions on that service, you have to have a better 
welfare system for people who yes. didn't end up getting an abortion, either not in time or because they couldn't afford one in the first place because yeah or it wasn't accessible near them they couldn't afford it they couldn't take the time off work like there's so many facets to what access really looks like if that's the case take care of people on the other side of the womb and on the other side of birth if you're gonna if you're gonna be pro-life be pro-life after birth be pro about that child's life you're gonna force somebody to carry a child to term that they don't want then you need to provide for that child. I got zero time, zero time for people who are like that because it's super hypocritical. I really want to talk about, you know, accessibility as like a a key construct in what we're talking about today. It's one thing for us to say, you know, we think that sexual health is super important and we think that it, you should be able to education. But the biggest the biggest problem that we face is the access to both sexual health education and sexual health services. Oh, then yes, I agree. It's not just about education. It's about the actual services, right? Like it's about yeah. the access to the education and also the access to the services. And if you can't access the education, then the services should be accessible because they can provide education support. The information needs to be widely available and well understood, but the ability to access anything that we're talking about also needs to be widely available and understood. Yeah. Like in my, in my dream world, you know, just as kids learn about Pythagorean's theorem, they also learn about sexual education and sexual health. That should be drilled into our brains just as much. (sighs) Maybe one day, maybe before I die. Yeah. I mean, like if there was, if there was ever a lifetime project for you, Hannah, what would it be? in in sexual health what would your what would your dream project look like my dream project would be creating evidence-based reproductive health education materials so or sexual and reproductive health education materials i don't want to limit it just to actual human reproduction but Mm -hmm. i want people to know that there are places where you can get an abortion you don't need to have a home abortion and potentially die from an infection or completely ruin your reproductive system and make you infertile or make it difficult for you to conceive the next when you actually are ready to have a child. I want a world where basically you can just ask anybody any question like you did with your mom and then, you know, not be scorned or shamed. I want people to know what their sexual health follow-ups need to look like. Like, I don't think I knew as a teenager that I needed to go get a pap smear every now and then, or that I should, you know, get STI testing done, you know, like at a particular frequency. You know, that is one of the things I think needs to be drilled into the minds of young, young people. So they, they know how to take care of themselves because that's what it is, right? It's about taking care of yourself. You know, that actually, that's a really great point. They talk about getting tested in sex ed. And it was when you have a new partner or if you think you've been exposed, there was no, oh, you should just somewhat regularly get tested just in case. Okay, Megan. So um, after talking for probably what will be our longest episode to date, (laughs) what did you learn today? um, Okay. I learned that governments love to regulate bodies. I learned that sexual health 
and sex education are extremely important for people who are going through puberty and people who are growing up and also for young adults who are sexually active. It doesn't just stop (laughs) when you are suddenly a teenager. Like it's a continual thing. And I think that there's a little bit of a gap there. I also find that sexual health is actually something that we should just always be talking about. Like it shouldn't be a taboo subject, you know, depending on your, obviously depending on your, your um, circumstances culturally, but you know, in a North American standpoint, like you guys, let's talk about it. It's not, it shouldn't be something that's kind of hidden away. It should be something that we are actively talking about it because they always say knowledge is power. Like, like literally let's talk to each other about it and support each other in either seeking the services that you need or finding out the information that you need to know. You know, there's just, there's so much out there. And I think that's another, you know, one of my final lessons I think maybe is that um, access is probably the most important and problematic part of sexual education, sexual health. Those are all fantastic lessons. And I'm glad that you took something away from my ranting. I love talking about this. I could talk about this for hours and hours every day and then wake up and do it again the next day, (laughs) continue ranting and talking and thinking out, you know, solutions to issues, access issues and issues with curricula. So thank you for letting me take up some time today, Megan, and, you know, talk about my, my passion that I've unfortunately had to set aside for a little while. I'm super happy that we got to talk, honestly. Thank you for all of your expertise. You're welcome. And if any of you have questions, outstanding questions, if you have my number, you can text me. Um, You can email us, DM us. If you have questions, reach out. Um, In some ways, I'm like Megan's mom. If I don't know the answer, I'll find it out for you and I'll make sure that it's an evidence-based response so you have the best information possible. You're awesome. Thanks so much, Anna. Thanks for your expertise and your extreme knowledge and just generally your awesomeness oh thanks megan great great recognizes great awesome (laughs) recognizes awesome (laughs) love you all right bye y'all bye You weren't kidding when you said you're going to uh, bring in as much Taylor Swift into this conversation as possible. I I am. But listen to this. Um, we might just get away. No, I'm kidding. We might just get away with it. Religion's in your lips. Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship. We might just get away with it. The altar is my hips. Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship this love. And then I know heaven's a thing. I go there when you touch me, honey. Honey, hell is when I fight with you. I like how you did a really big gadunk after after you finished that. <laughs> that was me throwing my phone down in like I rest my case. It was a mic drop. You mic dropped your phone. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I don't want to mic drop my actual <laughs> mic because it's expensive. But basically, yeah. Taylor Swift went from being like this watered down, neutered version of a con- of herself to please the country music industry to a woman who is embracing her sexuality and is singing about it and making a shitload of money doing so millions of dollars in this essay i will
in this, <laughs> in, this in this essay i will yeah so let's let's talk about um when my mom tried to give me the talk right okay amazing so i was yeah i think i was nine i think it was the beginning of fourth grade so yeah i was either i think i was nine like just a couple months past nine it doesn't really matter anyway my mom takes me into her bathroom and she takes out a thing of pads and some tampons and starts telling me about periods which like okay good really glad i knew that and um she you know starts mentioning that my body is going to be going through some changes soon it's just something that's natural so if anything happens i can come to talk to her blah 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 and like i'm the oldest so this is this is her first go around and i don't know how it went with the rest of my siblings um but she <laughs> asked me after explaining periods and kind of prepping me for what might come she says to me do you want to know where babies come from and now i'd like you to remember <laughs> i've I'd like you to remember this. I have three younger siblings. I am nine years old at this time. My youngest sibling was born just before I turned six. So this woman has been pregnant four times and the last time finished up like three and a half years earlier. Mm -hmm. And my, my dumbass looks her dead in the eye and says, no, they've probably changed it since you were a kid. <laughs> Yeah, changes. It definitely changes, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely changes. 